It is good to be back. We are uh, continuing the Psalms, although we're taking a little bit of a turn. We're going to start and stay in Psalm 119 for four sermons. Um, It's it's a psalm that I have come to love. It took a lot of years because it's one of those you come to and you're reading through the book of Psalms and you're like, whoa, that's a lot of pages. It's like six different spreads. And so we're going to read every verse this morning and just slowly meditate on each verse. Um, We're not doing that. What we're going to do actually is uh, really work thematically through it, and and you'll see how we're doing that in a few minutes. Um, But I've just asked uh, Sean to prepare a couple of slides that show um, we're going to look at like 16 verses just to give us a sense of what Psalm 119 is is like. Uh, First of all, as I've already said, it's the longest psalm. Uh, The authorship is most commonly considered to be David, King David. Uh, But it's, it's, it's a psalm that is in a genre. There's Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 and then 119 all kind of follow this idea of of Torah or law or teaching. And so, of course, Psalm 119 is just overwhelming amounts of information uh, on on the beauty and the glory of God's ways and God's laws. And it's an acrostic psalm, so it's 22 stanzas with eight verses each. And the 22, uh, each of those stanzas is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so what the psalmist is doing is he's, he's bring, coming into a constraint by forcing himself with each stanza to begin with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, in English, it doesn't do that. But if you read the Hebrew, all the first one is going to be Aleph, then Bet, then Gimbal, then all the different uh, uh, letters of the alphabet all the way to the end. And th- that kind of forces him to deal with words in that, in that family while staying on this theme. And uh, it's interesting, this idea of constraint. Um, we, we see it in modern, uh, more, I should say modern, more modern eras, like, like Shakespeare and, and since him, like sonnets. Sonnets are constraints, right? You have to write, this is the format. Now go be wildly creative within that constraint, that format. And it's fascinating because oftentimes art that has a constraint to it is more beautiful. And that's quite, that's quite essentially what we're seeing in Psalm 119. God, what we're going to find is, while most of us in our modern era, and even as Christians, we stumble into this thinking that God's laws can be restrictive, God's ways can kind of hold us in, we want freedom. Usually that freedom we think we want leads us to a prison. And when we can find the glory and the beauty of God's ways and God's laws, there is freedom. So that constraint actually offers us beautiful freedom. So we're going to take a few verses, um, but just the, 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 the backdrop I want you to hear is somebody who is doing these things. Now, and, and you'll see the choices from this morning, mostly ble- praising God's law. And if you, if you read it, you, you can both find yourself um, joining in with the author, but at times you might feel, wow, I don't know that I feel that way. I don't know that I'm always that excited about God's ways. I don't, I don't know that I'm praying to God all the time that he would show me more of his rules, especially in our modern context. And yet what we're going to find is he's also one that's wrestling with these ways and asking God to even unfold them more for him. And then I've added, so we're going to read verses 1 to 8. We're going to skip to um, 25 to 32, and then we'll just read the very very last verse. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever read all the way through to the last verse, but it's astounding because it's not what you would expect. So let's read together. 
Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who are also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And then we jump ahead to verse 25, and we're going to see a slightly different, um, though the same themes, a little bit different angle. He says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And then the last verse, don't show it yet. Is it up there already? Oh, it's up there. Just a second. Um, you can see the difference between those first two stanzas, right? It's a little bit more personal. He's dealing with something. And then if I were to ask you, how do you think this psalm ends? I'm, you can't answer me because it would take like the rest of our time for everybody to answer. But I, my tendency would be to think that he would go out saying, so I love doing your works, I love doing your rules, uh, something along those lines. And you come to 176, and here's how he ends the psalm. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we have in the psalmist, David, um, honesty, uh, someone who guides, someone who we can follow. And Lord, we praise you that you are a God who both loves to give us good gifts and teach us your ways while at the same time forgiving us of our sins and our waywardness. And then mystery of mysteries, using our actual repentance as a vehicle for growth. Lord, I pray we would grow to love honesty even when it hurts. And I pray we would love your laws more than ever, especially as our world is running full speed ahead away from you. Amen. So um, thinking about the, these words, um, I think what I'm wanting to convey this morning, what we're going to do is an intro sermon with three points. Shocker. And then those three points will become the basis of the next three sermons. And so I'm, I'm going to just touch on these points today. But the, uh, the, the heart behind what I'm reading as I meditate on this psalm is uh, the, the psalmist is wanting to take what he knows in his mind and he wants it to sink into his heart. He wants it to become something that actually moves him in his daily life. And that's really what we're after with wisdom and, and, and holiness. We're after not just having ideas and theories in our brain, theology, but we're after it sinking into our, the depths of our souls. Another way to say that is the creed. We're going to close with the Apostles' Creed when, when uh, we come to that part of our service. And again, creeds are super important. They help remind us what we believe. We confess them. We say them. But the question is, is that reality, is that truth moving into the recesses of my heart that I would live accordingly. 
Um, and, and the only way that I think we can do that, and, and please hear, is that if we are hypocrites. I mean, in a way, right? A Christian has to be. We have to be able to say, this is what I believe, but I know what I do falls short. If I don't do that, I'm going to have to lower the creed to something achievable, or I'm going to have to pretend I'm accomplishing it and I'm not really in sin. And yet what I think the psalmist invites us to do is hold both in tandem. That at one and the same time, I can believe God's law is pure, God's ways bring blessing and flourishing. And at the same time, I can say, and I don't follow, I'm struggling to, to follow them. I'm struggling to believe them. I'm sinning, I'm struggling. And, so, and it's the cross that comes to rescue us. And so we're going to look at this last verse. I have gone astray like a lost sheep, confession. Seek your servant. That's a prayer asking God to come and seek him. For I do not forget your commandments. A statement of faith. And we're going to take, here's the order we're going to go in. We do not forget his commandments, point one. Point two will be seek your servant. We need you, God. We need you, Jesus, to show us your commandments. And then finally, we're going to find that um, confession and repentance, I have gone astray like a lost sheep, is, uh, is the vehicle for bridging the two. So let's start with the first one. Again, this might be a little bit fast because we're going to dig into it the next three weeks. Um, but the psalm really begins with the concept and the truth that God's commandments, God's blessings are beautiful. Um, one of the more famous verses from Psalm 119, thanks to Amy Grant, is thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a guide unto my path. And there's many other famous verses that come from it. But this idea of blessedness for those who walk in God's ways, the, uh, the psalm thematically actually has eight different words that are synonyms for like Torah, which is law or commandments or precepts or rules or word. All of, these, all of those synonyms are, are the psalmist's way of saying, God, what you, who you are and, and, and everything about you is beautiful and pure. Now, the question for, I think, all of us is, do we believe that? Is that where we are as a society? Uh, I'm, I'm actually reading through a book called uh, the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Man by Carl Truman. I'm reading through this book. It's a reformed writer. I believe he's in the PCA. I'm reading it with, like, five, four other area Stillwater pastors, and it wasn't my ideas. Um, so it's really neat. But we're, we're sitting there, and we're discussing this book. And he's really trying to get to the bottom of what's behind our societal thinking right now. And um, he's and early in the book, we're only doing the first two chapters. He starts, Truman, the author, starts rifting with a, a philosopher from Canada named Charles Taylor, who is trying to make this point that oftentimes things come from the elite and work into everyday vernacular, which we've talked about before. But what Taylor does a great job is he, he explains that um, it doesn't all happen like this person teaches this person, like this academic teaches the artist, teaches the scientist, et cetera, and then it comes to you. He makes the point that it happens through all sorts of means of distribution, social media, stories, um, legends, whatever it is as a culture we cling to, that teaching subtly comes in and it infects us all. And here's the point. What this man, I don't believe Charles Taylor, who's, whom he's quoting, I don't believe he's a Christian, but he is saying the Western culture has moved from a mimetic view to a poesis view. 
So there you have it. Well, the first one, we'll say the M word, regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning, and thus, human beings are required to discover that meaning to conform themselves to it. That is a pre-modern slash modern view. Like, here's the world out here. Our job as people is to figure it out and live within the constructs of that world. That is not a Christian worldview. That is a world, that is a worldwide worldview up until uh, our postmodern era. Now we've moved into the P word, which is the, basically says this. The world has all this raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. My job as an individual is to self-actualize by using all the things I can see and know and feel and do to, be, to determine my own destiny. And his point is that this society, the Western culture we live in, has moved from a predominantly first view, the mimetic view that we mentioned, to this primarily poetic view. Why is that important? Because I think for Christians, and this is what was said when we were meeting as pastors, one of the pastors said, I'm not sure our people believe in the Bible anymore. Maybe. I said, I think Christians, I'm talking now about evangelical, even reformed Christians, uh, even however, what camp you want to be in, believe in the Bible, but I think what we're doing as a, as a Christian culture is we're putting the Bible over here in a faith room. You have this bedroom in your home, this cute little room where you put your collection. You know, if you like to collect dolls or warm memorabilia or something, you put it in that room and no one goes, really goes in there and it's where you walk in and you feel all the pleasures of that collection and it brings you so much joy and you look at every item and then you close the door and you walk out in the rest of your house and you live your life. And I think that's what Christians do. The question before us is, are we believing that God's ways bring flourishing in everyday life? That's the question that the church has to answer right now. Not like not now, like in 10 minutes. Um, but we have to be answering this for ourselves and as a community. I think... Um, a lot of us have that, have that dilemma, and I, one of my favorite quotes I use often that I'm going to walk us through, I don't know if we have it on a, it's in your worship guide, Frederick Buechner says this, he says, the Bible is not, first of all, a book of moral truth. Of course it is a book of moral truth. He's saying that's not its primary purpose. He says, I would call it instead a book of truth about the way life is. Those strange old scriptures present life as having been ordered in a certain way with certain laws as inextricably built into it as the law of gravity is into the physical universe. In other words, you think scripture, when it says something, it doesn't mean it goes in the closet for a Sunday morning or when friends come over to have a prayer time. He means that when scripture says something, it's saying this is how life operates at all times. He goes on, when Jesus says, he could have chosen many of his statements, but here's the one he chose. When Jesus says that whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will save it. He says, surely, Jesus is not making a statement about how morally speaking it ought to be. Like, Jesus is not saying, I'm going to found this religion, and I think morally this should help you. Beekner goes on to say, rather what Jesus is doing is he's making a statement about how life actually works, how it is. And so what the Christian does 
is because of the gospel, we come to the law and we're, we're free to say, yes, I can do that in Christ. I can actually lose my life and believe I gain it by faith. The world can't do that without the cross, but what Beekner is saying and what I think uh, this psalm is clearly teaching is God's laws bring blessing, they bring healing, they bring uh, vibrant life, they bring flourishing. And our challenge is, I think many of us have moved away from that view. We've turned to so many other sources of life when, we hit, when, the, when the going gets really tough. When matters of, I, there, I won't name specific matters because I believe in turning to the medical community, turning to science, turning to medicine. I believe in all of that. As long as we're doing that along in, with scripture as our guide and Jesus as the author of life. But so often what we do is we sort of close that door and, and smile as we leave that room of faith. And then we go about the rest of our day and our life as if that doesn't even have anything to say. We use language like, in a perfect world, that would be out here, but right now I'm going to contain that over there, and I'm going to do it out here. So, next week we'll really try to unpack that more, but I want us to wrestle with that. I think all of us in this room have wrestling to do. There may be someone in this room that thinks, what I just said is crazy, and the Bible doesn't speak to all areas of lives. There's some of you here. Others might be like, no, no, I mean, I don't know what Ryan's saying, that I'm totally in the Bible and I would try to orient my life. Let us all have the humility that we are being infected by the world's views and our own flesh colludes with it to drag us down wrong paths of thinking. And so we have to come back to Scripture, which leads us to the second point, where in 176, the psalmist says, seek me, right? That's his, he, he says basically after saying he has gone wayward, he says, let me find it. You get the exact wording. Seek your servant. That language appears throughout the entire psalm in so many places. Um, again, I've already mentioned the more, probably the most famous verse, uh, that, assuming you listen to Christian radio in the 80s. Um, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Beautiful truth. Uh, I like the Rambo illustration that Jason used. How about we say thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path keeping me from walking into landmines. You know, like there's a war going on and we are in danger of exploding if we step on this mine and the Bible and scripture and, and the truth is gonna keep us safe. I don't know how that ties into Rambo other than war. I'm looking not at you guys, I'm looking at Jason over there. But dude, three verses later, he says, accept my free will offering, this is now 108, and teach me your rules. Now, isn't that, isn't that strange? I love your law. I love your rules. I love everything you've ever said. I love it. I read it. Will you teach it to me? That takes humility. That takes the implication that I don't get it. Because wisdom is not just simply learning laws and rules. It's applying it to the hard places. We'll talk about that more as we go. Just a few other verses. In 124, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and... Teach me your statutes. 125, the very next verse. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Wait, didn't you just say you loved the testimonies? But he's also crying out that God would deliver wisdom. In 131, I open my mouth and pant because why? I long for your commandments. In 133, 
keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity don't have dominion over me. Like, do you hear what's happening? The psalmist is saying, I believe your ways, but here's the thing. I recognize that I will not be able to follow them if you're not the one guiding and leading. One of the biggest frauds that has ever been put across uh, mankind is this notion, I think religion and maybe even evangelical religion is the number one uh, promulgator of this view is that you can come to the Bible, learn it, and then on your own go out and live a good life. That is a lie of Satan. When Jesus rescues you and gives you a new nature, it's his nature. He's not trying to redeem your fallenness. Come on, man, quit being fallen. He's giving you his nature. You have a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And so in humility, we go, will you show me? Will you teach me? Will you guide me? That's what our life looks like until we go home to be with the Lord. Uh, A few, I don't know how long ago it was, we went through the book of James. But do you remember when James talks about trials? And it feels very convicting because he says, consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. This is getting funny. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, trials. Everything's a trial. Everything that you engage that isn't fun and easy and perfect is a trial. And what James is saying, you consider it joy because now you get to take what you say you believe and see if it's going to work. And so he goes on. If you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives it generously without reproach. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. I used to read that. I've told you this when we preached, I preached through it. I used to think that meant, God, should I make this investment or not? And I, without faith, with faith, I trusted he'll tell me the answer. And so I opened my mail. Oh, that's the, same, that's the company that's. I was thinking of, I'm going to make the investment. I, that's the wisdom. God gave me the answer. No, that's not at all what's going on there. Here's what's going on. Jesus says, love your enemy. And you read that as a 16-year-old, and you're like, yes, God, that's great. Thank you, Jesus. I love that. And then you're 26, and your best friend turns on you, and you're like, I hate, I hate that person. And then you remember this law, love your enemy, and you're going, "Uh, I don't see how that applies. Pray. Jesus, I believe I'm supposed to love my enemy. I hate Mike. Is there any Mikes in the room? We always choose names and pray there's not one in the room. Jesus is saying, I will give you the wisdom to see how even though right now you think you hate Mike, my law is beautiful. I can give you a love for that person. It may not happen instantly, but you'll fall more in love with them. To love your enemy is the most gracious thing, not just so the enemies get away with stuff. Because the worst thing it turns out for you and me is when we hate people. It kills us. It hurts us. The other person doesn't even know it most of the time. We're dying inside. We're feeding on it. And so the law of God is beautiful, but it has to be utilized. I don't have time to read the quote, but there is a quote from Cornelius planting it on the front about wisdom. And the goal of wisdom then and the goal of crying out to God is saying, will you please show me how to apply this? And let me just close out by hitting the third point um, of our of our three parts because we're going to build on this as we go, uh, where the psalmist says, again, David, I'm going to assume it's David. He says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. So we believe the commands, point one. Point two is we're crying out to God, teach me your rules. 
teach me these things. Help me apply them to my life. That means I'm bringing my life setting, my life situation, the things I'm wrestling with before the Lord. And if you read through Psalm 119, he's doing that. Please don't let the enemies put me to shame. He's not getting as particular as we will because it's written for all time. But we need to be now bringing the things we're wrestling with and the Lord will come and show us. But here's the third and final point. It has to be through repentance. Right? When I come to this place where I have an enemy and Jesus says, love your enemy, and I don't want to, I have sin. Right? And I need to confess that sin. But it's not like this, confess your sin. It's more like, I've got great news. You get to now confess that the blood of the cross means something. Right? Why is Jesus hanging on a tree and bleeding if I don't have sin? And so when I see my sin, I can remember the words from Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's that joy? Because he knows I'm going to need to go back to that cross over and over again. For f- not, the, not that I'm becoming a Christian again, I'm already a Christian, but in my sanctification, I find new vistas, new places where that needs to be applied. Think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. We talk about it all the time. Renew your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. But why? In view of God's mercy. So all of those chapters of Romans, which are so incredible about what Jesus has done, aim that we as Christians would go, okay, So now I find where I'm not conforming to these laws. I'm begging that God would open my eyes, and I'm realizing, oh, I see what I have to do. I have to die yet again to self and live to Christ. And he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. I mean, that's us. We are lost sheep, and Jesus is the good shepherd. We studied that this week at VBS. Marsha did a phenomenal job. And as a good shepherd, what does he do? He not only goes for the one which we are and brings us back, but then he dies for us, clothes us in his righteousness. And in that posture, we have a fresh sense of the beauty of his rules and laws. Because all of a sudden, what seemed abstract and interesting when we first went through it as a 16-year-old or 12-year-old or whatever age, now in this present moment, it looks real and true and good. And that is the beauty of his law. So what do we do with that? My encouragement is to, here's the application for you guys. It's, we're gonna, we've been, I'm going to go short today. I never do this. So in one minute, you get the closed application. Read Psalm 119 this week. It's probably a 30-minute read, so just spread it out. There's 176 verses. So divide that by however many days you've got. Read through the section you're going to read through. But here's my, rec- my, my re- recommendation. Read it. And remember this, and, and this is one of those things. Does anybody watch uh, Ted Lasso? Anybody watch Ted Lasso? I don't recommend that to young children. But there's this one episode where they do the, there's like a psychological, have you ever done that psychological thing where a word doesn't, like it, it sounds weird to you? So in one of the episodes, the word plan, he can't, plan, plan. Have you ever had that happen? Anyone? Am I the only one? Thank you, Cindy. I'm going to say something that you're all going to go, Ryan, we don't need a preacher to tell us this. This is obvious. And I want you to get to the place where this is like super strange. Psalm 119 is a prayer. It's not theological, like the writer is going, here's new theology. 
every single verse is a prayer of David to God. Open my eyes, open my heart, change me. So when you read through Psalm 119, pray it. Pray it this week. Cry out to God, see what he will do. And please bring in your particulars. What are you struggling to bring to him in your life right now? What are the specific things that you don't want to trust him on? Finances, job, future, health, anything. Just bring it to him. Cry out. And cry out and say, Lord, I'm not asking that you take those things all away, which would be wonderful. I'm asking that you will change my heart to love you and trust your word. And then next week, tell me how it went. And we'll all be, everybody coming back next week because we're going to go deeper into this. Okay, let's close in prayer. Jesus, your law is glorious and beautiful, but like the man in Mark, we say we believe. Help our unbelief. Thank you that you've sent your spirit to do that. Thank you that you've given us the fulcrum of repentance, that we can actually name the ways we rebel, but in a sense we do that with joy because we've already been forgiven before we even say it. So we're now just getting to the party that's been going on of forgiveness. So I pray we would repent like that. Teach us to be honest about our wrestling and struggling with your ways. Teach us to be honest with you and say, we really want to love or we really want to have faith or trust or care. But Lord, we struggle for all of these other reasons. Will you change our hearts? Will you give us wisdom? Will you turn us into people as you have promised to do that resemble you more and more every day for your glory? Amen.